Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. In 1823, in London, in a room above the Crown and Anchor Tavern, a physician named George Birkbeck founded the London Mechanics Institute, an institution dedicated to the education of working people. Eventually rebranded Birkbeck College and incorporated into the University of London, it became an intellectual refuge for multiple generations of non-traditional students from wildly diverse backgrounds, from Ramsay MacDonald to Sidney Webb, from Tracy Emin to Marcus Garvey. All were drawn by the college's commitment to meeting their passion for learning by providing what was called useful knowledge. But what is useful knowledge? Useful for whom and for what purposes? How has the definition of useful knowledge changed in the past 200 years? And how have its boundaries been challenged and reshaped by the students themselves? Those questions about the politics of adult education lie at the heart of a conference to be held online on the 23rd and the 24th of February, titled, appropriately, Useful Knowledge. Convened to commemorate Birkbeck's bicentennial next year, it features a range of reflections and conversations about the history, politics, and future of learning for mature people. To discuss that history and the issues propelling it, I sat down with the three people most responsible for putting that conference together. Johnny Matfin is a PhD student in the Department of History, Classics, and Archaeology at Birkbeck, working on the history of the college ahead of its 200th anniversary in 2023. Kieran O'Donoghue is also a PhD student at Birkbeck, working on the college's history between the 1850s and 1920, with a particular focus on students and the dynamics of college life. And Joanna Burke is Professor of History at Birkbeck College and the author of the forthcoming book, Birkbeck, 200 Years of Radical Learning for Working People, to be published in September by Oxford University Press. I thought we could just start very simply by inviting you to talk about the conference, what it is, the genesis behind it. So, so basically, Birkbeck's 200 year anniversary is coming up in uh, uh, 2023. So Johnny and I are both working on elements of the college's history. Um, for our PhDs um, with Joanna as our supervisor. Her book is coming out on the topic in September 2022. So me and Johnny thought it'd be a great idea to get something together to, one, celebrate it, but two, to have a critical discussion about certain elements of history and, and thought that have perennially been involved in the college's history. So the one that we touched on mainly was uh, useful knowledge, because... It's something that comes up a lot, especially in the Victorian era, and um, it's it's just one of those issues that never goes away, but constantly changes meaning. So what is useful knowledge? Why does an institution attempt to um, disseminate it, et cetera? So that's, uh, that was where it sort of started from that discussion, and then Johnny and I have uh, spread out to that from there. So for any listeners who have never heard of Birkbeck, 
maybe you could give a sort of capsule potted history of what it is when it began and what lay behind its establishment. I think the history of Birkbeck is such a fascinating story. Uh, we, you know, we started as the London Mechanics Institution um, in 1823, so it's our bicentenary next um, next year, which is really, really exciting. But you know, it was part of this real movement in the late 18th century and early 20th century to sort of educate working people. And it was driven very, very much by workers themselves. And this is what I think makes it a really unique movement. And Birkbeck, or the London Mechanics Institution, as it was called there, then it was established by these men, often really, so many of them were really working radicals. Um, I'm thinking of people like Place, who, Francis Place, who was one of the, the founders, who was known as the, the radical tailor of Charing Cross. This is in the 1820s, and yet he advocated free love and sex before marriage and birth control, and he was greatly in love with his wife. And so he advocated female emancipation. So, you know, there's all these really radicals who established the uh, London Mechanics Institution, but there's also much more conservative, Whiggish type um, politicians and philanthropists such as George Birkbeck himself. That's how it started. And, you know, as time goes on, to go back to Kieran's point, you know, what was considered useful knowledge for our, what we call now our students, they were called then members, you know, has changed dramatically over time. And at the beginning, what were those boundaries of useful knowledge? Well, useful knowledge at the time, you know, it was really about self-improvement. It was about trying to link up radical politics with a much more practical, how do we change our society? It was very much linked up to with the, um, the Great Reform Act, in other words, suffrage for working people. It was about, it was very governed or driven, I, I think, a lot by utilitarian ideas about the greatest happiness for the greatest greatest number. Those really are the key things, at, at least in those early days. I think later it was picked up as well. That was the intention, but I think a lot of historians think it's, it was mainly about scientific knowledge. I've read a few times that useful knowledge meant scientific knowledge, and that's not entirely correct because the idea was this self-improvement, because as you can say, the London Mechanics Institution, it was four mechanics who uh, would probably be best described nowadays as artisans, not they were machine operatives. And, you know, teaching them experimental philosophy, as it was called, wasn't necessarily about them adding to the Industrial Revolution or anything like that. If you look at London Mechanics Institution, the idea was actually to inspire the love of learning within these men. And so that they had some kind of tangential knowledge of what they were doing whilst they were doing their jobs and how they might be able to improve their own crafts and therefore national prosperity. But then after that, in Birkbeck's own history, the usefulness of that wore off as the as the mechanics left London, basically. It was, a, it was already a diminishing class. And so by the mid-19th century, the London Mechanics Institution was based in Southampton buildings in Chancery Lane, so surrounded by the Inns of Court. So what you actually ended up having was a lot of lower middle class people, um, lawyers, clerks and, and shop assistants and things like that coming to the London Mechanics Institution. So then useful knowledge became something that would be useful to them, such as accountancy, shorthand, bookkeeping. At, at one point in the 1870s, I think, uh, Birkbeck was teaching 24 languages. 
something like that. So you sort of see it as useful for the hub of the empire. So there is a there is a real change really quickly. And then with the introduction of civil service exams from the 1870s onwards as well, you get obviously needing to teach teachers and needing to teach civil servants to pass these exams. And then also a rise of the degree at the same time. So Birkbeck is then trying to cater for everyone all at once in this in this little strip of a class group. So it becomes much more muddied. And then um, you, you then have the aspiration for Birkbeck to become a university college makes it difficult for them to continue certain things that they've done since they started. So um, music was started being taught at, in Birkbeck, at the London Mechanics Institution, sorry, in 1829. And by 1909, they had to get rid of it because it wasn't a, considered a, a university subject. Whereas, on the other hand, you had them introducing subjects that they had resisted teaching, like ancient Greek, because you needed ancient Greek to get a bachelor's degree. So that just gives you a little bit of a flavour of how rapidly changing the idea of useful knowledge was in the 19th century, anyway. No, and this this is the I mean the other interesting thing here and what you're talking about is of course useful knowledge is also gendered. So the London Mechanics Institution was one of the first, was it the first institution in London that actually admitted women to their full programs. So 1830s we're talking about. So women colleges in this country, in Britain, you know, weren't established until you know decades later. But Birkbeck was allowing women to come and do their, their classes, including some really, really, I mean hugely radical classes. For example, women attended classes in anatomy. Now, classes in anatomy taught by George Birkbeck himself, who was a physician, you know, was radical even for men to, to, you know, to take these classes because, of course, it opened up the body of humans and you know, gods. It, it, you know, it took on this godlike function and, and, and broke the body. Um, and they allowed women uh, to attend the courses. So what you also get is the introduction increasingly from the 18 from 1830 onwards of courses that were deliberately explicitly marketed as the word we would use today towards women and for women's occupations so for example music um singing um those sorts of elocution jobs, elocu elocution, which of course were marketed towards women because this were these were areas where women could get employment, paid employment. So again, one of the um, one of the things I, I have to admit, I, I just have really loved about writing the history of Birkbeck is just seeing how these young women really grabbed this opportunity to educate themselves, you know, the sorts of knowledge that they could use to actually improve their lives, which meant they didn't have to be dependent on their fathers or their husbands or brothers, that they could actually have independent um, occupations. It's a really, really, you know, I think, exhilarating story. And one that has some low points. <laughs> For example, one of the, the, the women I talk about a lot in my book, Lancaster, she actually went to, in fact, it was called Birkbeck by the stage she, time she got there at the end of the 19th century. And what happened to her was her family, her father in particular, was so angry that she was educating herself. And in the in the course of going to classes, she fell in love with another student and she was going to move in with him outside of um, marriage. And so one day she's sitting just before she was going to move in with her love affair. Her father and the sons and her brothers 
came into her house and dragged her away and forcibly took her to an asylum locked her up in an asylum. And what's really interesting is if you actually look at why she was being locked up, it was overeducated. Now it's a nice story. She, you know, she managed to get out and everything like this, but you know, it it does, I think, show just how passionate women were as well about the kinds of useful knowledge that they needed, they wanted, and they were prepared to really um, risk a lot for. I think it's interesting as well, women's really long relationship with Birkbeck. They've been there for so long that by 1870, for example, where you've got the Education Act and also the first female civil servants, both in the same year, is, is Birkbeck was one of the few places that immediately wanted to open its doors to extend that education to these ladies. So t- teacher training, for example, and uh, as I said earlier, these civil service exams, both of those were almost a, a point where they, women were moving from the classes that um, Joanna talked about earlier, so music and elocution and things like that, where they had this vocational kind of useful knowledge, which is not, they're not the same thing. We should stress useful knowledge is not necessarily vocational knowledge, but you've got this, this process that begins in 1870 where women start to be able to move. So the, the classes are different from the lectures. So the lectures they access to from the 1830s but the lectures start to diminish in importance so women move into the institution proper into the classes and it's these classes that uh, give them the the ability to tutor children for example so it's an acceptable form of vocation for ladies but in the 1870s you get this change where the changing world of work starts to break down the barriers within Birkbeck but because they have been in Birkbeck for so long it means that it was one of the few places that was very willing to change rapidly to allow women to, to do what, um, what men could do. So within 10 years, in all but name, women had equal access to all the classes. By 1896, they were completely equal membership, which is quite staggering. And um, Birkbeck was the first place in the United Kingdom to establish a completely equal student union in 1904. Women had the same voting rights as men. This is obviously you know, 20 years before the equal franchise, four years before. So uh, it's this, this relationship starts to just really um, increase women's rights. And because they've been there for so long, men were actually willing to support that, which I think is quite an, quite an incredible series of events that's all founded on this useful knowledge. But there's also a strong tradition in the college very early on of BME participation. And we think I'm thinking here of Marcus Garvey, who was at, at Birkbeck. He came from Jamaica in, I think it's 1912 to 1914. He, he studied law and philosophy. And this was where he um, became exposed to some of the, the really radical emancipatory literature that was circulating in the States. So um, Booker Washington, for example, um, you know, he read this, this important literature and it was on when he left Birkbeck on the way on the ship back to Jamaica. This was where he conceived of this idea of establishing an association of a liberation association. And, you know, so there's, there's, there's those things as well, which I think when you look at the the broader history of Berkeley, and I, and I want to bring in Johnny here because Johnny deals with a later period of history. I think one of the things that that is interesting 
is that there is throughout its history, its 200 years history, there is this undercurrent of radicalism that was there right at the very beginning. So, you know, again, um, one of the founders was Thomas Hodgkin, who Karl Marx admitted he took the labor theory of value from listening to his lectures. Um, I mean, Hodgkin really should be seen, he's not really known today, but he really should be seen as, you know, one of the first English socialists, one of the leaders in that early English socialism. But you can trace that through the entire history of the, the college. And, you know, Johnny, um, who's in this call as well, you know, works on the history, um, classics and archaeology department, and how, you know, you can see that influence as well. So I'm, I'm passing on to you now, Johnny, because I'm talking too much. <laughs> yeah, I think Birkbeck as an institution is sort of, seems very well placed to enter into some of these wider debates. I mean, firstly, about part-time and mature higher education. I mean, just as, just as a, a sector, to use a kind of a slightly ugly word, we hear too much in universities, but as a sector of higher education, obviously it cuts both ways when we talk about women or we talk about uh, black and minority ethnic students. They are, throughout the sort of contemporary period, they are often the students who come into higher education through the part-time and the mature, whether that's, you know, a, evening A-level courses or the old polytechnics or Birkbeck indeed. And that sort of cuts both ways as a, as a, as a story, you know, there's the sort of the aspects we might wish to celebrate in terms of opportunity and access and what some of those people go on to do. But there's also the questions obviously to ask about why is this sector in particular, why, why are these groups overrepresented in this sector in particular, you know, what does it say about the deeper stories of their lives and, and so on? And I think one thing we wanted to do with the conference, obviously we, we are all, uh, all three of us are engaged in research on the history of Birkbeck as a sort of, as a focus, but we knew obviously the anniversary, uh, the bicentenary is coming around, it's a, it's a big anniversary, but we also saw it as, a, as an opportunity to do something more than just talk about the history of Birkbeck as interested in it as we are and as important as we think it is. And I think Birkbeck is peculiarly well-placed for that because it sits on this strange threshold between the sort of elite university world and this much broader world, which is the sort of part-time mature higher education going back into the WEA. And it's part of that landscape. And it's also connected to the University of London and it has this sort of elite connection as well. And so you have, because of its position, some very interesting stories coming through it in terms of where students, for example, begin, where they end up. And it really is a portal for a lot of people. And even though you can definitely ask questions about, I mean, Kieran talked, this is, talked about, you know, the long-term switch to Clark's, as Richard Evans uh, reminded me during an interview, you know, these were not horny-handed sons of toil necessarily. But there is still, I think we would all argue, something radical going on even into the 70s, uh, 1970s, 80s, 90s, in terms of what people are doing with their lives. And um, one thing that's tricky, I, I suppose, for all of us is to avoid being overly sentimental about it. But it's really striking when you talk to past members of Birkbeck staff, past students, everybody I've spoken to is very clear on, on the effect, if you like. I mean, it's, it's like a sort of uh, maybe cliche way of talking about it, but 
something radical really does happen to a lot of people when they come through, not just Birkbeck, but other institutions of part-time mature higher education. It really is life-changing in lots of different ways. I, I was thinking about this. I mean, you know, as you all know, I taught there for 17 years and I can attest to both the kind of the desire to, I wouldn't say sentimentalize, it's just genuinely reflecting on the experience that I had teaching and the students I encountered and, you know, how extraordinary it is to have the the diversity i remember one one time i was teaching an american history seminar and in the room was the daughter of one of my rock star idols from my teenage years the wife of a cabinet minister a, a political refugee from zimbabwe and a woman who drove a tube train i mean we're talking about the american revolution where else in the world is that that going to happen. And, and it was completely magical for me as a teacher. Having said that, I think I think that you know the the intellectual threads through its history are very interesting in their kind of ambiguity. And one of the ones I wanted to bring you all back to was this idea of self-improvement, which you know, of course, can have a radical edge, it can also have a kind of very individualizing, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of tinge to it. And actually, when I was hired at Birkbeck, it was explained to me that this was why the college's future was secure, because both sides of the political spectrum loved it, loved to celebrate it, because it seemed to endorse their point of view on the world. So I wonder, how do you see that sort of self-improvement impetus affecting the college's history and the history of the students who came through. I think that's just an amazing way to, to frame it, Mary Beth, because this, this question of is this education that's being given by the London Mechanics Institutions or Birkbeck, is it by its nature radical? Or in fact, is it exactly the opposite? Is it actually teaching people to acquiesce to power because, you know, teaching them to understand it, teaching them about the economy? And, and you know, right from the very, very start of the London Mechanics Institution, this was, this was being debated. So Marx, for example, I mean, Karl Marx admitted that he stole this idea from Hodgkin and he you know, really, really um, greatly admired him. But, you know, at the same time, he said, but don't you realize that this is teaching people to be more, teaching working people, that is, to be passive, to accept their lot in life. And that self-improvement is like, is that that's the whole aim of it. And Engels said exactly the same thing, that, you know, what is this? He wanted, um, he thought that working people shouldn't go to places like the mechanic institutions. They should be going to, you know, sort of workmen's um, societies taught by their peers. And yet at the same time, again, in the 20s and 1820s and 30s, there were others who were saying, yes, okay, but pragmatically, we are using this education we're getting to develop skills that we can use in radical organizations. I mean, truly revolutionary organizations. So that tension was always there. So if you then jump from the 1820s and 30s to the 1980s, where Birkbeck is going through a real crisis with you know, cuts to our funding, with neoliberal accountancy issues and all of that, you know, what you're saying, Maybeth, is exactly right, that people who, within Birkbeck, who had identified on the sort of left, 
started to use Thatcherite ideas of self-improvement, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps in a way, again, in a pragmatic way to, to gain support, political support in particular. So that debate has been there our entire history and, and you know, fundamentally about your know, pragmatic issues of, okay, on the one hand, self-improvement, getting more money, this individualist um, attempt to improve one's lot. And yet on the other hand, actually, we can actually use this to transform lives in much more radical ways. But as, as you were saying about the 1820s with this whole thing, the, the contemporaries were quite disappointed with the way that the class shifted to the lower middle classes. But what Johnny was saying about this whole um, sort of Birkbeck always being in, a, in an odd place between two groups and things like that. Self-improvement isn't necessarily class-based, but it's quite funny that it moved to providing for the lower middle classes because that was their worldly obsession was getting into the middle classes proper. And so you have this strange time where they're absolutely desperate to get into the middle class. I think, though, there is another thing to consider here, particularly if you're looking at broader histories, as Johnny was saying, that certainly the conference is not simply about Hoffbeck or the London Mechanics Institution. It's much broader than that. And, you know, there is this kind of underlying historiographical issue that I sometimes makes me really uneasy. And this is a historiographical issue that has was pretty dominant, particularly in the 1980s and 1990s amongst um, historians, labor historians, and that is that somehow working men and women have to be revolutionary in everything they do, that they don't have, they, 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 that somehow if they want to do singing lessons or if they want to just do dancing lessons, and a lot of people came to the London Mechanics Institution to do drama, to put on plays and to have fun, that somehow that is diminishing their radical politics because they shouldn't be doing that because they should be doing economics, radical economics. And that kind of makes me really uneasy the thing is, as well, is that contemporaries really acknowledge the fact that entertainment was important um, and that it was a you know, release to all the day's physical toil was, you know, there'd be provision in the evening to have these dances or have soirees or have a dinner with people. And, and they, they saw that as vitally important because one of the purposes of the Mechanics Institution was also a moral purpose where they wanted, you know, most of these people were temperate um, Whigs, well, or radical but they were, they were, a lot of them were temporary anyway, but uh, George Burbeck included. So they really believed in trying to provide an alternative to the casinos and the brothels and the, the public houses. I'm saying this as, you know, this is what they, they said, even though, you know, Burbeck was founded in a pub uh, um, because uh, the Crown and Anchor Tavern and, and the Strand had the biggest rentable meeting room in the entire city. But they really didn't believe in temperance, not abstinence completely. But um, so part of Birkbeck's mission was always to provide these entertainments to, to, to give people a place to go in the evening, not just for the lectures, but to go for the reading rooms or go to the library. The library is probably the most important factor in getting people into the institution for a good 50 years because books were so expensive. Henry Broom, one of the other founders, quite famous at the time, went on to become the Lord Chancellor. He gave the example of Hume's history, uh, which was six, six shillings, six pence, a, a copy. And so Broome spends an 
a massive amount of time of his most famous publication, uh, uh, Observations Upon the Education of People, are talking about books and how publishers should produce books in volumes and things like that so it would be cheaper. How the single best thing that working people could do if they couldn't get together a mechanics institution was to get together money to buy you know, a block of volumes and then read one volume at a time carrying on from, from each other. So it was provision beyond the lectures and things like that that, that was really important. And um, as Joanna says, there's this really historiographical issue where social historians have been very critical of the Mechanics Institute because of the fact that mechanics, by, by and large, lost interest in a lot of the places. But with Birkbeck, you get the clerks coming in because, one, they're in the area, but two... Nobody's really considered the provision for the clerks themselves. So you've got other clubs that mimic it. So uh, literary and scientific institutions, for example, which are for the middle class proper, which cost about £2 per annum to be a part of. So nearly double what Birkbeck was at the time. So you get very little provision. But if you look into the contemporary sources, more than historiography, you see that they are praiseworthy of provision for the lower middle classes. They're praiseworthy of entertainment. They're praiseworthy of all these things that social historians have later come back and criticised Birkbeck for. So it's, 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 it's quite an easy, uh, um, an interesting situation, as Joanna says. And it does make you feel a bit uneasy because the lower middle class is often called the, the forgotten class. And uh, it's quite interesting because, as Johnny said earlier, they feel this sort of weird liminal space where... They're not really anywhere. They're, 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 they're not quite as well provided for, but they're not quite as well considered. And then their sole purpose is seen as, as self-improvement or getting ahead, as V.S. Pritchard called it. So the Birkbeck is a really important place for, for them, but it's, it's considered a failure in the 19th century because it didn't really capture the imagination of the class it was designed for originally. You know, what does happen in the 20th century, both in the, the first half, and you've got two world wars, obviously, and the Blitz, but then you have presumably at some point after the 60s, an expansion of people going straight into higher education. So what might have been Birkbeck's original constituency of people who you know, were aspirational, but didn't immediately have either the means or the the inclination to go to university, they're more likely to go to university straight out of, out of school. So what, what happens to Birkbeck's kind of sense of self and its constituency, you know, in the second half of the 20th century, say? From 63, I suppose, you had the Robbins report in 63, which really kicks off this mass expansion of UK higher education. And Birkbeck definitely feels that wave it's interesting when you look at part-time and mature higher education broad, more broadly in that part of higher education, the expansion was even greater. And you can even break it down more that particular groups, for example, women in part-time higher education, I forget the exact percentages, but it's multiple times the equivalent expansion of full-time male school leavers, for example. So something quite interesting happens within that mass expansion of universities after the Robbins report with a particular focus on part-time and mature higher education. At Birkbeck, certainly, I mean, I'm looking at one department, history, classics and archaeology, and definitely within those student numbers, you can see the mass expansion wave come through. 
it's not quite so simple, it's not quite so linear. For example, um, in the 70s, there's quite a slump in numbers, which I think even the architects of Robbins didn't really predict. And then we're into tricky territory in the 80s, uh, early 80s, you obviously have the cuts come, come in with the Thatcher administration. And then in the very late 80s, early 90s, suddenly there's this resumption of expansion under John Major. And that's when really you move into the kind of modern, expanded, marketized higher education world. And I think essentially in, in a lot of ways, I think that seemed to be quite good for Birkbeck in terms of student population, you know, in terms of growth for departments. One area where uh, maybe to go back to your question about Birkbeck's sense of self, maybe one change that raises deeper questions as well, I think is it taps back into this idea of self-improvement as well, I think is um, when you have the introduction of university fees, for part-time and mature students, that changes things quite a lot because what it, I think, does is introduces a sort of chilling effect on what sometimes it's used sometimes as a derogatory term, but the sort of leisure learner, the person who's in it for self-improvement in terms of just intellectual interest or, and you know, sometimes in the history department, but that would have been, as Richard Evans pointed out, hospital porters, for example, people with a lot of time on their hands in day jobs who want something else in their lives. Uh, and, you know, you can think now, it's a, it's a I mean, pre-COVID certainly, uh, had a lot of people in office jobs where they are not, for whatever reason, not getting intellectual stimulation, they're looking for something else. And to go back to this question of self-improvement, I think it's very interesting how resilient an institution like Birkbeck is and how resilient part-time and mature higher education is as a concept. Yeah, I mean, politically, that as you said, it can be adapted to the, it's certainly a, a long-term sort of associated with the left, but it can also be adapted. And it is, as, as Joanna said, or it was during the, those Thatcher cuts, you know, the defenses that were mounted were also uh, in, in the direction of the right, it can be done. but. One thing I'm curious about from my own research is whether a distinction can be made when you talk about this sort of intellectual self-improvement. It seems to me, and it's not, it's not my idea, you know, but from things I've uh, read on this uh, question, maybe the, the sort of right-wing version of self-improvement is, is less keen, less comfortable with intellectual self-improvement for its own sake. Again, that's a sort of derogatory term now. People talk about education for its own sake as if it's a sort of indulgence. But I think... One thing that's very clear in institutions is the breadth they provide, the latitude they provide, the space for people to choose what sort of self-improvement they wish to undertake. And of course it changes, in many cases, it changes. People might start, it might be a hospital report, it might start with a sort of intellectual drive and then realize actually there's something else I want from this. I want a degree to get a different job. I want to pursue academic study because I'm good at it and I, I think I can take it on to research level or, or whatever, you know, and I think that, is something, there are a lot of speakers who I think are going to touch on this at the conference, but it seems to me it's a really key question now when we're talking about what are universities for more broadly, not just part-time mature higher education, but it provides us with a very useful lens to look at that much bigger question as well, I think. Can I think I that echoes all the way through as well. Joanna's book, she comes up with such a good example right at the very start. It was a cabinet maker who, who went on to become a professor somewhere because, as you say, Johnny, the, the example of the hospital port you just gave, he just went because all, all his mates were going to the Mechanics Institution. It was this novel thing 
where they can all go and learn science. But he became so enthralled in it and he was so good at it. He won essay prizes and stuff that were going from the Royal Society and then and then went on to, to teach it himself. So he changed career completely because he was a leisure learner and then found his niche. Um, and I think, you know, Birkbeck's always provided that. Can I just come in here? Because I want to go back to what you were saying, Mary Beth, and what Johnny, you picked up on. And this is the sense of self um, and, you know, the sense that we belong to a community that has a distinctive identity. One of the things that really interests me about that is the extent to which during a number of really big crises in the London Mechanics Institute and Birkbeck's history, how that sense of self was really driven by the students themselves. So I'm thinking about you know the turn of the, the 20th century, Sidney Webb was, was at Birkbeck and was one, as, as a member of the student union, was one of the powerful forces in leading or being one of the leaders of the student union in terms of saying, we must be part of the University of London. We want to be prestigious. We want, we want you know, proper university status. So you're driving that sense of who we are as a, as a community. And sometimes in our other crises, for example, during the, the Second World War, you mentioned, Mary Beth, where, you know, Birkbeck was the only college that stayed in central London. We were bombed. You know, our, our library was destroyed. Lots of our laboratories and everything was destroyed. But we kept having classes throughout the Blitz. And again, that was driven by student demand, students saying, we need this. Um, this is our, if you like, this is not simply frivolous. This is not simply imp going to improve our lives. This is central to who we are and our well-being. And then, of course, in the 1960s, we, we have a master at Birkbeck, um, Lockwood, who wants to destroy that mission. I mean, he sets out explicitly. He wants to close down central London campus and take us to some field outside of the city Come just like any other university with you know normal ordinary you know, usual students, and the huge pushback that he received from students and also staff at Birkbeck, J. D. Bernal, the the you know the, the, one of the greatest crystallographers um, of the twentieth century, was one of the ones who also helped lead that. So this you know the sense of self, sense of identity, is is something that students have really insisted upon. And I, I just think that's that's so important for who we are as an institution. It's interesting that that's been maintained in the way that you've said, in this sort of crystalline form of this notion, and it, everybody has it. But also, if you look at the, the development of Birkbeck's student base, it's very generational. So you get this, the mechanics want to make it what they want to make it, the clerks want to make it what they want to make it, then you get the civil servants that make it well, they want to make it. And then there's the people that oust the civil servants to make it a degree-giving institution. And then it goes on, like you say, into the First World War, you get a lot of uh, war students afterwards that the government is funding their, their study because they've survived, well, survived the war, basically. And then you've got the, the ones in the Blitz and the ones that resisted Lockwood. So it's, it's, it's interesting that this sort of sense of identity and, and force of personality has such a such an impact on the development of Birkbeck, but it's it's so generational, fractional, but somehow becomes a cohesive process. And that's one of the things that really interests me, I must say. 
Yeah, I think um, I'm liable to say something like this, but I think it would apply not just to Birkbeck, but to other, other similar institutions. I, I would hedge a bet that if you were to pick a random sample of students from even this year on the street or graduates on the street from this year, the sort of pride that students associate with Birkbeck as an institute ha having passed through it. And I think it's quite a curious, I mean, I've come across it myself. Also, I've been a Birkbeck student myself, but I've met a lot of ex-Birkbeck students. The way they talk about the institution, I just think it's quite different to your average conversation with a university graduate that perhaps more likely to associate themselves with the city that they studied in or unless uh, the institution. And I wonder whether there's something going on with the particular dynamics involved in part-time and mature higher education. I mean, mature, maturity maybe we could come onto as a, as a as a, as a term, because I guess you can define it in different ways, but there, there is something particular, I think, at Birkbeck and other institutions in terms of a sort of collective enterprise that, it, that is undertaken by slightly older or more experienced people. I mean, you mentioned the, the demographic of your class that you, you, as you remembered it, and I wonder whether that accounts in part for how people feel about the institution once they pass through it. That's really interesting. What that made me think of was um, how so, for example, the University of Surrey, because that was the first thing that popped into my head when Joanna was talking about campus universities. I think, oh, no, the University of Reading, sorry. That was the first new campus university that was built in Britain. And uh, you get this sort of, like, top-down, like, this is it, we set up the structure, get on with it. Whereas Birkbeck, I, I don't know if I feel perhaps biased because um, I've, I've been looking at, at it and I really believe that it developed in a unique way, which I'm... Maybe a lot of universities did, but I think a lot of them were also set, sort of set up from the top down and, and whatnot. But um, I do wonder whether uh, there was like a unique process, really, or if that's that's imagined. But I think part of it perhaps is because what you were saying about maturity, Johnny, is um, you know the, the the difference between the students and the the administrators and the staff and the lecturers in terms of age, especially in the certain you know, critical periods was, was, was not really that much different. And I know that during my own master's degree at Birkbeck, I was probably the youngest person there, which is a great feeling because you, the, the conversation you have is so much more interesting because you get people who are retired or, you know, senior doctors, lawyers, hospital porters, like you were saying, Johnny, earlier. So I do wonder if it's a bit more of a collegiate spirit in terms of colleagues rather than college. But I do wonder if that is given a unique force on, on, on Birkbeck's development. I wonder what you think, Joanna. Yeah, can I just come in? Because, you know, uh, like Mary Beth, I, I, I mean, Mary Beth used to teach at Birkbeck for many years. I remember your great colleague, Mary Beth. <laughs> and of course, I've been at Birkbeck as, 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 a, as a lecturer for, for decades. Um, and I've taught elsewhere. And I want to preface what I'm about to say um, just by a little footnote that you know, I'm writing the history of Birkbeck. It is a warts and all history, and there are lots and lots of warts. There is nothing, you know, it's not a, you know, it's not a white history at all. Um, and I, I feel sorry for the VC when he promised me, when I agreed to write the history for our bicentenary, he promised me that I would not have to show anyone one, any paragraph before it was published. And I think he's probably regretting that. So there are lots <laughs> of warts. But Really sincerely, having taught at um, University of Auckland, um, University at the Australian National University in Cambridge, before I came to Birkbeck, that, you know, I since there is something about the older student, 
who comes to class sometimes not as well prepared as, as students I've taught elsewhere, but intellectually engaged because they're giving up something very real. They're giving up their leisure life for, you know, three to four years. Um, so they come really engaged. They come with skills that I don't possess, skills that they got through their workplace or through their background or whatever. They come more gobby, if I can use that expression, <laughs> than, than your 18 or 19 year old. Um, and they don't come with hangovers like your 18 and 19. I mean, you know, sincerely, I mean, in all of my books that I've published since I've been working at Birkbeck, I thank my students because in all honesty, I have tried out ideas on them and I have learned such a lot from them in terms of content, but more importantly, in terms of you know, ex expression, how communication. So I do think that you know, there is something really special about the institution that makes me really, really proud of it, despite the fact that probably more than anyone else, I know a lot of warts. <laughs> So I'm aware we're beginning to come to the end of our time, but I suppose I was interested in, you know, we're coming out of a disrupted couple of years for everybody, but for higher education in a particular way. The compulsory switch to online learning may have posed particular issues for Birkbeck students if they're a generation or some of them a generation that's less conversant with technology, less used to leading much of their lives online. So I suppose... The question is really, you know, where do you see what you've been describing has been a process of synergy of the, the way in which the different constituencies of students from to an extent from the bottom up evolved this uh, and reshaped this project of useful knowledge. So I guess, you know, my, I'm inviting you to kind of predict the future, just what the future of this of this particular institution and of part-time mature higher education geared at conveying, disseminating, broadening access to useful knowledge. Where is that going to head in the future? I think um, a couple of things that were interesting about the pandemic. One, just to touch briefly on what we were talking about just before about the, um, the identity of Birkbeck and the student, student experiences. We saw it in the, the reactions of students who were protesting, having to pay fees, or it really seemed to me a very clear um, illustration of where we're at in terms of universities, in terms of the marketization. You know, students were behaving quite rightly as uh, consumers of a product that was being tampered with, if you like. And so I, I think just briefly, that was the first thing about the pandemic. Very early on, it seemed to raise to me this whole question about, is this where we're at, that university is just a product to be sold to people, you know, to be consumed by higher education providers, as they're called. At Birkbeck, obviously we had the switch to online. I guess the big question for us is, as um, Roy Foster, the historian of Ireland, pointed out to me when I was interviewing him via Zoom, you know, the staff at Birkbeck used to pride themselves, they distinguished themselves from the Open University because at, the, at Birkbeck you got people face to face, that was the difference. You got top people and you got them face to face. And of course you, you still get them face to face, but you get them down the line. And so we're in slightly, unknown territory as to whether this still, is this still the Birkbeck style or is it something slightly different? The third thing just briefly is I think in terms of technology, part-time and mature higher education, I think has a very important role to play as people's working lives are changing. You know, they're becoming increasingly techie 
and also in a lot of cases increasingly more automated. And maybe to think about it positively, maybe there's an opportunity here. We've got the technology, we have the institution. As people find themselves increasingly, perhaps it's not inevitable, but their work becoming increasingly more automated, perhaps some, the technology can also provide something very important, which is a sort of part-time mature higher education opportunity for a lot of people who hadn't previously had it. There you go. There's my three bits. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, I'm very... I'm very optimistic. Um, I think because of our students and because they have been the ones driving our identity, but also you know, Birkbeck is such a transformative university, a transformative place. And you know, in, in the world we're living in, you know, fake news, rising authoritarianism, economic and environmental and health crises, you know, the power of critical thinking has never been more important. And, you know, I'm thinking of um, H.G. Wells, you know, famous sort of statement that, um, I hope I get this right, that human history is more and more a race between education and catastrophe. And your governments have to realize that. Um, and certainly our students do. Many thanks to Johnny Matfin, Kieran O'Donoghue and Joanna Burke for taking part in this conversation. More information about the conference and links to register for it can be found on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>